What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 147 of the Midwest Angler Podcast. I'm Scott Sturman, and I'm joined, as always, by Matt Deitch. And we've also got a special guest for the first time ever, a guest in in the house, in the studio, studio, right here in the Beat Lab, Big Tall Scott Mockentoon. Scott, how, how are you doing? It's good to be here, you know, ready to talk fish, ready to, ready to answer all these questions that the listeners have, and uh, we even started the day off uh, knocking down a few roosters in the uh, in the great state of Minnesota and crossed over the border down to Pig Love. Well, there's no, <laughs> yeah. there's no pheasants in... There's no pheasants in Minnesota, are they? Like they, they no, probably. If you go 15 miles, if you go 15 miles to the west and you cross into to South Dakota, then it's there's just not stop. There's a strong northwest wind today, so they all blew over. They did blow over. over. Okay. Well, how'd you guys do? I saw a picture. We did pretty well. We we got our limit. So yeah. Did you? We got eight Four of you. Everybody yep. got shooting. It was good. Really? Yeah. Yep. There's a lot of holes in the sky today too, though. Those birds were getting up into that wind sometimes, and they were gone in a hurry. You know so. what they say? If the if the trigger's gold, the bird will fold. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't gold very often. Well, no. It was pretty cool though. We did put one down, and his dog Hazel ran it down, and it was kind of fun on an open field watching it run, watch her run it down. So that was cool. Do you do much pheasant hunting up by you at all, Scott? Not a lot where I'm at, but I will come down to this corner of the state. Okay. Okay. Well, obviously, uh, uh, you know, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're having Scott on to uh, to to do the uh, show, the Ask the Biologist show. We've uh, we've got a bunch of questions in, and uh, you know, a lot of the questions were a lot of the exact same questions. So, um, if you don't hear your exact question, it isn't that I forgot it, but you kind of ask the same thing as somebody else. So uh, um, that's that's just what's going on there. Um, but I feel it's only right that we started off with a random question, right? Definitely. That's how we always do. Random question time. All right, Scott. You were on your way down here this morning. What gas station did you stop at? Did you stop at a gas station? <laughs> I did. Right out of the gate because I was at about an eighth of a tank. Quick trip. Quick trip? Well, they got those in downtown Minneapolis, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Minnesota's been run run over by uh, quick trips from Wisconsin and Casey's from Iowa. But, yeah, we've got two quick trips in New Prague. Okay. And a Casey's? We do have one Casey's, yep. No, we don't even call them quick trips down here. They're quick, quick stars. stars. Quick, quick stars. stars. Quick stars right. Copyright here. infringement or something <laughs> like that. You got one, Matt? I haven't thought about it actually. Well, you can shoot I, one from the hip. I can shoot one from the hip. Um. Oh man, you're kind of putting me on the spot here. All right, Scott. Would you what, rather? What 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 song were you listening to when you oh. rolled up this morning? What are you listening to on oh. the way down? You know, we we're actually I had talk radio on there. Had all the NFL previews coming out, so it was was I knew I was going to be hunting through the Viking game. I thought, well, I'll at least listen to what else is happening in the league. They pulled it off. They did. The Vikings pulled it off. We watched it. We, I had I tell mom, we stopped at the old Deitch Ponderosa up in Ellsworth, and I'd yell, Ma, turn on the game. The meatloaf. You got the meatloaf done, Brenda, or what? All right. Confidence was low, but, uh, yeah. yeah, they kicked her through. That's all right. That's all right. All right. Well, uh, um, I think we'll get right into this. If, if we've got some time at the end, we'll kind of BS about some other stuff, but, uh, uh, to get things started off, our buddy Zach Cox, Mullen, Nebraska. Uh, the cowboy wants to know what is the advantage of a slot limit. So I think what he wants to know is, you know, a slot limit compared to, uh, you know, just per- perhaps lowering the the overall limit. Uh, what are the advantages to a slot limit? 
So typically, protective slot limits are put in place where a management agency is trying to regulate their harvest. And specifically, um, I can speak for Minnesota for a second. A lot of our slot limits are to uh, ensure kind of the renewal of the resource to put larger fish back that can be caught repeatedly or uh, specifically with our walleye where most of our protective slot limits are are to protect uh, breeding stock fish. So if you look at Minnesota's most common walleye regulation, it protects walleyes from 17 to 26 inches. A female walleye is coming into sexual maturity right around 17 inches. Uh, and throughout much of its life, up until it starts to get flirting with the trophy size, you know, those are the prime years for, for reproduction. So it's a way to kind of hedge your bets and always ensure that you have enough brood stock in the lake to produce strong year classes. Is has it ever been done in any species outside of walleye? Like, is there ever a crappie slot limit? Is there ever a, a bluegill slot limit? You know, I've heard of it in walleye. I mean, you know, you mentioned walleye. I've never heard of it in any other species. Is it something that's ever been done? You know, and again, I can only speak for Minnesota. Um, I have fished in in most of the Midwestern states, but not enough to be familiar with their with their regulations in and out as much as I am with Minnesota. I would say our bass, right? Uh, there's lakes that are are largemouth and smallmouth bass are protected with protected slot limits, and that's mainly because it's such a popular sport fishery, not so much a uh, you know, harvest fishery. That's to ensure there's large size fish for people to get out and catch. I think when you're looking at pike, when you're looking at panfish, you're seeing some size minimums or reduced bags. There's not as much of the protective slot limits for those other species. Okay. All right. Uh, next up, uh, we'll go with Kent in Wapiton, uh, Wapiton, North Dakota. Uh, when was the last time a new fish species was discovered here in the Midwest? Great question. It happens very frequently, but it's not what a lot of folks would think. It's non-native species being discovered. Oh, yeah. You know, these are bait escapees. These are uh, invasive species that come through, uh, you, you know, whether it's in, in, in bait tanks or in the aquarium trade or whatever it might be. I, I think a pretty good example would be the European rudd that showed up in South Dakota, probably linked potentially to bait trade or an illegal uh, illegal introduction. So you're probably seeing more of those examples of the most recent fish. So that's kind of what we say. Minnesota at last count was at 168 different fish species, but that depends on how many invasive species uh, you're willing to count. That's the most common new discovery is when we do find uh, invasives or, or exotics. Yeah, that makes sense. If you were going to, so if you found one, no name to it, what would you name one? Oh, you boy. Of that? Yeah, like, that's I mean, a real question. I mean, right like, <laughs> well, common names are probably going to be taken, but if you had a brand new scientific discovery and folks find these fish down at the bottom of the abyss, you know, in the ocean, two miles down, uh, you know, these crazy fish species that have been undocumented, uh, tropical areas without a lot of human, in, you know, uh, presence and, and haven't been discovered before. You know, scientists have the ability to choose what they name it. So a lot of times they will name it after, you know, themselves or whoever first discovered it or a favorite band. I mean, you see it with insects and uh, arachnids, uh, lice. You, you, you know, you can you can pay homage to someone like Gary Larson, the cartoonist. There was a louse that was found that was named after him. It was 
the, 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 the species named end in Gary Larsoni. So when you name it after someone in the, uh, in the Carlos Linnaeus nomenclature, you end it with an I when it's named after a person. So I don't know. I did, you know, maybe, uh, back in Tunai, back in Tunai or <laughs> the, uh, would it be a large mouth or a small mouth? <laughs> the mini Mockin Tunai. Uh, yep. So yeah, that's a good question. All right. Uh, moving along, uh, and I'm just going to read it exactly how he has it written here. If zebra mussels got into, let's say, Bitter Lake in northeast South Dakota, what would happen to the freshwater shrimp? Would it negatively impact them, which would also impact the forage base in the lake? All right. So anticipating there was going to be some sort of zebra mussel question here, um, but interesting that it's very specific about what would happen to the freshwater shrimp. Now, I fished on Bitter a couple of times, um, it, this is a tough one because I think a general question you can ask is what happens post introduction with zebra mussels? Well, we know that transparency is going to increase. We, in other words, the water is going to become clearer. Uh, you're going to put up more of your energy is going to go down into the benthos or the bottom of the lake where the zebra mussels are hanging out. Um, potentially you've got more light penetration that's happening. And those are the, you know, the, the only predictable changes that you can speak to. What, you, what are harder to predict uh, are, the, are the biotic changes, are the fish community changes and the ecosystem changes. Um, you know, we, we can make some predictions, but they don't always come out cookie cutter exactly the same. So specifically to freshwater shrimp, I suspect that it wouldn't be a good thing, but I don't know if we have a lot of case studies to go off of something like that, where we had a, a system that had a very prolific shrimp population that was uh, that, that, that zebra mussels were introduced to. So that's, that's, a, that's a good question. It's tough to say exactly what the outcome might be. Okay. Um, obviously, uh, you know, zebra mussels, since we're on the, uh, since we're on the topic, um, we got a question from uh, Jesse who... Um, he says he, he goes up to a lake, uh, vacations up to a lake up by Alexandria, Minnesota. And, uh, those lakes now have zebra mussels in them. He says that the water clarity has become amazing. That in turn has changed the weed lines to grow into deeper water and cause the weeds to become thicker, which isn't always a great thing for any water sports, but from a fishing aspect, he has really enjoyed it. Bass fishing during the open water has been a lot better, and he thinks the quality of fish has been better also. Um, so basically what he wants to know is, do biologists always see the negatives with zebra mussels, or can zebra mussels actually provide a positive uh, deal to, to lakes also? You know, anytime that you're talking about invasive species, I think there has to be acknowledgement of, you know... <laughs> We, we want to make these good-bad sort of distinctions, and it isn't always that clean, and nor, nor should it be cut up into good or bad. In, in a, you know, if you're truly a scientist, you don't talk about something being good or bad because that's introducing a human belief system into it. That's true. I never thought yeah. about that. Right. So you kind of have to speak in, in, in the language of science, which is why you're careful to say zebra mussels come in and your water transparency increases. Or, you know, you talk about the things that are measurable outcomes. I do think there are changes and anglers have to be made aware of them. You know, and that, that's pretty basic, right? You can't go back to grandpa's spot that always held walleyes because those things are changing. They're not always going to be found in the same spots anymore. 
I think, you know, I have some waters in the work area that, that I, uh, um, you know, supervise, and we are seeing big changes. We've had zebra mussels in there for seven years, and I can tell you that the change has been just what Jesse was it yep. just yep, as yep. just as Jesse described, right? Water water transparency increases. That in turn means sunlight penetrates even deeper. The plants respond. You have more macrophytes or you know rooted aquatic plants, leafy leafy plants, um, submerged submerged plants. They're growing. They're doing well. They're proliferating, and then they're extending into deeper water. When we think about the type of habitat that that supports, that's speaking to centrarchids or bass and panfish. They are they are site predators that like warm water. Now flip that to our walleye fisheries. Um, they want a certain temperature and they want a certain uh, turbidity or light penetration. Now they don't want it to be too terribly clear, nor do they want it to be you know too dark. There's a there's a there's kind of a sweet spot. It's kind of like people, you know, we we. We talk about we want to set our homes to room temperature, 72 degrees, or, you know, guys want it a little bit colder and women want it a little warmer, right? <laughs> right. Well, the, the, the same is true with fish, you know, that that's part of their habitat component. They, they have certain things in the water water that they, that they want and need. And so when we start shifting that with zebra mussels, we see a response. So to Jesse's point, I he's probably right. You know, if he's a bass angler, he's probably doing a little bit better because the habitat has changed to favor bass in, in that lake that he's fishing. We've kind of seen that down here at Okaboji a little bit too, it seems like. I mean, uh, it seems the the pan fishing has gotten better since the discovery of zebra mussels in there. Now, I'm not going to say that it's a good thing or, any, or a bad thing or whatever, but, I mean, you can definitely tell a change. Yep, I agree. I agree with that. Okay, uh, next one up. Uh, why do some lakes have jumbo perch, but other lakes don't? I think the easiest way to break that one down is what prey is available and what what predators are present. Uh, you know, we are in about oh, two, two or three years into a study in Minnesota on yellow perch and kind of looking at our numbers of a 50-year decline basically that we've observed of of not catching as many perch not seeing the large fish even on our our large walleye lakes that were known as these jumbo perch producers you know Winnipegoshish, Leech, Malax, Lake of the Woods, um, Winnie you name it you know these places that people used to flock to they don't have that same kick out of perch anymore and in a lot of cases we have protected large predators we've protected northern pike uh, we've protected walleyes, we've protected muskies through our regulations, our statewide regulations or, or special regulations on those waters. There's a lot of teeth in those systems. And what what makes uh, uh, up most of the diet out there, it's it's going to be perch. Or in some of those lakes, they're also going to feed on ciscos. So there's a lot of predation pressure. So that's going to be a big component of it. And then forage availability. I think for Midwestern anglers, there, there's a reputation now, you know, within the last, say, 30, 40 years for North and South Dakota waters. Why is that? Well, the Dakotas have gone into a wet cycle. They've seen these former wetlands expand into deep fish fishing lakes. And as that expansion has occurred, they've just fueled these huge booms in freshwater shrimp. You know, that's, and we'll talk about that when we, when we talk a little bit later here in the pod about, about 
uh, freshwater shrimp, but that's a huge forage, you know, high calorie, easy to find, easy to eat forage opportunity that those perch can grow quickly on. We have some other places in the Midwest that that uh, are driven by forage too to grow these really large fish. But I would say those are your your main two components. Um, you know what 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 kind of predator prey uh, relationships do you have in the fish community, and what kind of forage is available? And if you can find the right components, you can kick out some really nice jumbos, and you see that in the places that have that reputation. So genetically, there is no difference. You could go to northeast South Dakota, pick up those exact same perch, bring them down to let's say Spirit Lake that isn't kicking out these jumbo perch. You know, has has decent perch, but they're not the jumbos and and they would not that that the, the genetics are the same you know the it, it's still the same species i don't i don't put a lot of stock into the whole genetic side of things i'm sure there's a small component of it it's kind of like the analogy i would draw is is white-tailed deer you know you talk about diet being most important followed by uh, you know age and then genetics after that and it's probably the same with with these fish there's probably a small genetic component and the reason i say that is you can look at studies that have been done in the literature where folks have taken fish out of you know stunted fish out of systems specifically panfish whether it's perch or 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 bluegills or what have you they're stunted because they're so many of them at the same size competing for a finite resource of food put them somewhere else where it's unlimited in an open niche and they'll grow like crazy so the genetic component is just kind of thrown out at that point you know it seems to be so much more reliant on on the diet okay is, is there much for freshwater shrimp in minnesota there are in places so this is a question you know about what's out there basically there's there's two different freshwater shrimp that we're talking about. There's there's gamorous, which, you know, these are the ones that you see that are the huge, you know, as big as your pinky fingernail, you know, look like you dang near could put them on a salad type of freshwater shrimp. And then there's the hyalella, uh, which are the smaller, you know, the ones that you typically see that are, you know, might be falling off your decoy line. Um, they're, they're out there, but they're, they're not as big as the gamorous and there are plates. So we were talking about the Dakotas and their, you know, their shrimp boom. A lot of Minnesota lakes are just that much older and the fish have, have been present in those systems long enough that they've preyed down most of those shrimp that are, that are there. I mean, if you get into fishless basins, that's where, that's where the shrimp do better. It's, it's hard to keep those numbers up unless you have the right sort of habitat conditions for either of those of those you know either the hyalella or the gamorous and typically we don't see that a lot in minnesota in those established lakes i figure since we're talking about it th this was easily 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 the biggest question uh that we got uh with the freshwater shrimp uh i know my friend austin wanted to know jesse uh, who had the other question wanted to know a few other people wanted to know uh, why, if they could bring freshwater shrimp, you know, obviously it'd be illegal, you know, but, but my friend Austin, he flat out has a private pond, numerous private ponds. And he wanted to know if those, you know, if, if he could potentially buy freshwater shrimp somewhere. And, and so, I mean, I think what everyone wants to know is, does that take a certain kind of lake to house freshwater shrimp? Can freshwater shrimp be brought to a new body of water? What does it take for freshwater shrimp to, to take off in a body of water? 
So I've seen them for sale before, so they're definitely out there, you know, being marketed for folks to to stock them out. Um, you know, I can only speak for Minnesota for a second on the regulatory or permitting side. You know, we do permit, we do require permits for private fish stocking, and we require permits for aquatic plant seeding or transplanting. Um, you know, I, I would say wherever you're at, whether it's private or public, you're going to want to check with your natural resource management agency on the legality. Do you Does it require a permit or not? You know, I understand the question is, is this going to work out for me to put it into a private pond? It really depends on what you have. I mean, if you have this earthen, just scraped out pond that's not well established, you don't have a lot of aquatic vegetation in there, you don't have the habitat for the shrimp, you're going to put them in there and they're going to be gonzo. You know, it's not going to be a good investment for you. But if you have an established pond that you've had for a while that's got good aquatic plant growth, places for the the shrimp to be able to hide and uh, to feed on so an established, you know, plankton population, then absolutely, you know, you could probably see them do very well. But it... it <laughs> That's a that's a tough one. I just imagine it's it's going to take the right kind of concoction of, of well managed ponds to get those to, to take off real well. Well, I think I think we're willing to to give it a shot. Me and Matt, I think we'll be going up there trapping a bunch of uh, shrimp and <laughs> dispersing them around the Midwest and seeing where the, the big ones. Seeing where they'll take. those big ones that we can put on salads. Then I yeah, don't know, we might yeah. throw a few of those on the barbecue and. Well, I want, I want them to start off in Okaboji and get going. That way I can harvest them when I'd like and, and have that on. You got a salad. shrimp boat? <laughs> the the <Sure>. Jani. <laughs> Scott Gump shrimp. Yep. Okay, uh, next up we will go with uh, uh, David. Uh, wants to know, he, uh, he says that um, with bass being a catch and release species, Oh, and it kind of uh, being demonized to keep a bass to eat, is that hurting the walleye population? Uh, he feels like the bass population affects the food and the habitat and in, in turn turns around and uh, negatively affects the walleye population. What, what would you have to say about something like that? First, you know, it's not his question, but it, it's just so fascinating to think about 50 years ago, it probably in the Midwest, most people were looking at a, lot, at a largemouth or smallmouth bass as, "Hey, that's dinner." Right. right. Yep. And right. this is this is one that it's not management agencies that have pushed. It's fishing industry tournaments. You know, a grassroots effort basically to make this a catch and release fish. And it's it's amazing to to kind of get to that point. But no, to answer David's question, uh, there have been some studies that have been done on. The relationships between black bass, which is you know the, the all-encompassing term for smallmouth and largemouth bass, and walleye. I mean, a lot of folks are always concerned about that. Whether it's at you know speaking from Minnesota, whether it's malax or it's green, you know, all oh, these smallmouth are eating all the walleyes or causing these different problems. It's not a case of direct competition. When we think about direct competition, one fish is feeding on the other. It doesn't work that way. It's really an indirect competition sort of thing. Um, I've, I've also heard folks talk about this foraging arena theory. So we've got a, a fish like a walleye that, that uh, you know, is going to have certain parts of the lake that it's going to spend most of its time where it's going to be foraging and uh, where it's going to be you know, resting and where it's, where it's spending its time. 
and similarly bass have those places and we know they're they're oriented you know in the case of largemouth bass a lot of cover they're looking for cover whether it's down trees or, or aquatic plants uh, smallmouth bass are very rock oriented uh, that's their structure of choice so there's always there's always these questions about when one species does well uh, and and the others numbers back off is it is it you know folks are quick to point the finger and think it's sort of a direct competition thing but it's probably some change in the fish habitat uh, that's gone that way but from from all the diet study work that's been done on on direct competition it's 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 not that it's typically shifts in the ecology of the lake that that favor one species over another uh, it's it's not the smallmouth are are hurting the walleyes it, it really doesn't work that way they're 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 they are occupying their specific niche, which doesn't have a ton of overlap. That's another fascinating part about this, right, is you think about um, <clears throat> isotope analyses. You can look at a fish uh, and a fish's diet and figure out what it's eating from these isotopes, um, you know, basically chemical markers that are, are telling you you are what you eat. You, you pick up these isotopes from the prey that you use, and we can do these isotope analyses and map out where these different fish species are and what they're eating and you can see yeah they're not eating the same species they're not they don't have the same diet so there again there's there's multiple ways that the science can prove that yeah this this isn't a situation where you know bass are are, are hurting a walleye population do have you seen that some of the best bass lakes are also the best walleye lakes and also the best musky lakes and you know when they they all kind of possibly benefit each other. Is that is that possible? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean that that's a common refrain of of you know some of the best uh, fisheries in the world can support multiple species all across the Midwest. You see plenty of those examples. So that that's a pretty you know typical response when you hear that complaint or that that uh, issue brought forward as well. If it's so tough, you know, just in layman's, if if they're so hard on the other species in, in layman's thinking or terms, it's like, well, geez, how can we have this many this this great smallmouth fishery and this great walleye fishery coexisting well it is it is that simple they they can do just fine yep okay um moving along uh this one's also from david here uh he wants to know what type of lake and then he throws a big word that i'm not even going to try to pronounce but uh mesotrophic uh, right mesotrophic you got it mesotrophic <laughs> i was seeing if you knew <laughs> but uh uh, he wants to know what type of lake contains the best habitat for walleye. He says he thinks it seems like the dirtiest greenish water has the biggest walleyes. Is this the truth? All right, so great, great question there. Um, I'm going to segue into a, a study that was done up in Canada. Oh, it's probably coming up on 15, 20 years ago. Identifying this this idea of optimal walleye habitat and they refer to it as toha thermal oh, let me think about it here toha thermal optical habitat area it's the the portion within the lake that can support walleye that's the right temperature or the right amount of light penetration not too dark not too not too light uh, and and you if you think about that volumetrically um, you know and we think about how that that what that looks like and and using that criteria for opt you know optimally what they need for temperature and light you can plug that into a lot of different places and 
you know, see what your habitat availability is. And if your lake starts to change, if there's natural system change that's occurring, if there's an invader, zebra mussels, for example, that come in and change everything, you know, how does that thermal optical habitat area shift? Um, you know, you could probably come up with something similar for all these different fish species, you know, what, what their habitat requirements are. But being that the question is about walleye, um, David is on the money, right? When we talk about walleye stocking, and in Minnesota, we like to joke that uh, we spill more walleyes in Minnesota than other states uh, stock altogether. So uh, that's, our, that's our bread and butter. We do millions upon millions of walleyes in Minnesota. It's our state fish. Um, but yeah, we talk about we expect really high return on investment when we put our walleye fry into the dirtiest water that we can find. Turbid. You know, and, and typically that's really productive water. I mean, that it, it means there's a lot of nutrients in suspension. There's a lot of plankton that's available. So, right, the more turbid the water, typically the better uh, for walleye. It's not to say that that's a universal truth. Obviously, you know, you, there's a gradient from south, in, in Minnesota at least, from southwest to northeast with different water quality and different types of lakes. You know, you asked about the mesotrophic lake. There's a good chunk of the state that uh, is mesotrophic. However, if you want to produce walleyes, have the highest abundance, then you go to the dirtiest water. Then you go to the eutrophic water in the southwestern part of the state. And we come down here, and uh, you know you can get a 10 fish per gill net and, and be disappointed because you know the other lakes in the area are kicking out 20 or 30 per gill net. I mean, it's that turbid water is is really good for growing walleyes, but. Uh, you know, that that's one way to look at it is how, how, how turbid your water is. Another way is just to look at what is the habitat that's available, in particular spawning habitat, right? I mean, you're, I think the archetype walleye lake across the Midwest or across the walleye's range is slightly shallow, large, windswept, and then the substrate is so critically important, right? You got to have some rock, some cobble, some gravel, some sand, you know, all, all of that is going to make for excellent spawning habitat and just you know when when the walleye can spawn about anywhere in the lake with great success they're going to do well so i'm thinking malax leech winnebogoshish you know there's there's a reason they, they just look like great walleye habitat from the from the habit from the from just the way they set up now now you use the term mesotrophic and eutrophic yes yeah let me back up and do an explanation thanks you caught me on that so so me so uh, they're, they're Greek terms, trophic, kind of re referring to nourishment. So if you're uh, eutrophic is uh, highly nourished, mesotrophic is middle nourished, and oligotrophic is low nourishment, like very uh, low productivity. Those are your Canadian Shield, really rocky, northeastern Minnesota lakes, kind of Boundary Waters canoe area, east side, so... Um, that's kind of the breakdown for those those terms as we look at the types of trophic lakes that we have out there. Okay. Uh, next up, um, how many eggs in a 30-inch or near uh, walleye are actually going to take? Are they as fertile as the smaller fish? So, you know, I, I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily, obviously, uh, you don't know the numbers, uh, you know, with a 30-inch to a 28-inch or, or whatever, but... I think, you know, a, a, a big trophy caliber walleye, uh, how many eggs, uh, you know, is, is that fish going to lay and then turn around with, uh, you know, what's the success rate on, on the eggs that it lays? 
So I had a good discussion with a, a friend of mine, another outdoor writer, who had this question come up, kind of fighting, I guess I'll call it, over the different you know, value of female walleyes to the fishery. And there's kind of a couple of different ways that you can break this down. Like if I was saying earlier in the pod that, you know, a female walleye comes into sexual maturity around 17 inches and then our, our protective slot limit, the toolbox, you know, commonly used protective slot limit in Minnesota goes to 26 because we're protecting most but not all of the, the spawners in the system. And the argument is, or, or, or if you want to, if you think about this, um, that, that spawning stock biomass, all those females in the lake and their entire reproductive potential, by number, the younger the fish, the more there are going to be. You know, as, you, as time goes on, more of those fish are harvested or, go, or have natural mortality and exit from the system. So it's just a basic premise, right? At 17 inches, we're going to probably have a whole pile of females, but they're not going to have huge ovaries and not produce a lot of eggs. On the flip side, we're going to have some of these 27 to 30 inch walleyes that are going to produce all kinds of eggs, but we don't have a lot of them. So kind of the reproductive output by size class or age class, you know, there's a, there's a yin to that yin. You have numbers of total females, but then you have a, you know, you, the size of the ovary is different. So I think that's that's an important distinction here um, as you're looking at the at a population level. Now the question is about individual fish, and we've had this question come up: What is the value? Is like, oh, I caught this giant fish. I'm gonna put it on the wall. It's you know it's it's probably done spawning anyway. What's it really worth? You know it's it's probably just gonna have a bunch of sterile eggs. What what we found is there isn't really this tipping point that all of a sudden this female isn't going to kick them out i mean as long as she can run the metabolism and has enough calories she's going to produce eggs she's going to continue to do that her entire life and oh by the way when she's 28 30 inches and again the ovary is a is a is a product of the size of the fish so the larger the fish the larger the ovary the more eggs that are in there she's going to have a quarter of a million eggs in her and we know this, the, the larger the female, typically the larger the diameter of the egg. And we know that the larger the diameter of the egg, typically the higher the hatch rate or survival rate is. So there is quite a bit of value in protecting those large females. Uh, and they, there may not be a lot of them, but they tend to be excellent mothers, kick out really nice eggs in terms of size and you know, great hatch rates. So they, they do have a lot of value. Now, I've heard that a big walleye like that is going to eat more young walleyes than, than what it can turn around and produce. I've, I've heard that argument. I've, I think I've seen people maybe write that on Facebook before. That, that could plain out be made up after they post a picture of their 30-inch walleye and let people know that they filleted out or whatever. You know, but I, I've heard people say, you know, that... that uh, you know, a, a big walleye is going to eat more young walleyes than what it can turn around and produce. Any truth to that? Well, it's really hard to say system to system, right? Cannibalism absolutely happens, but typically you really have to look at what your forage is like from year to year. And on some of these large lakes where the biologists are out collecting the information, they can take a guess at it. They can look at the diet and see how much cannibalism is happening, but they've much prefer and just by sheer abundance they're going to take 
young of the year you know if there's a good shiner hatch if there's you know perch available young of the year tulipy whatever whatever's out there that's primarily what they're going to feed upon i'm not saying that there won't be cannibalism it, it does happen but the stronger that those other forage species hatches are the less likely you're going to see much cannibalism so i'd say it's kind of a that that'd be kind of a stretch to say that that female is going to consume more than she's going to produce that'd be really hard to believe okay yeah. how how old is a 30 inch walleye Oh, you know, it depends system to system. Obviously, um, in southern Minnesota, if we see them that large, uh, we, you know, it, it's probably going to take them a, a decade. But we've got fish. It's 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 really variable. The growth the gr yeah. the growth is really variable. But I would I would I would put them on it at least seven eight years, but more likely twelve to fifteen. You know, and that's that's just right. across the the range of Minnesota. Did perch kind of go the same way with that. Per, well, our, per, our perch are pretty young. I mean, just the the ones that I see in my work area, at least. I mean, you're you're hard pressed to find a, a a four or five year old perch, but you know that that can change too. And even in the Dakotas, from what I've seen from some of their aging, I mean, they're they grow a lot larger, but uh, yeah, they they don't live real long. Well, I know, like down here at Spirit Lake, they always talk. You know, people are always like. You know, if we could let some of them 12 inches go, pretty soon we'll have 13 and 14 inches. But they've said that down here that they're kind of at the end of their life cycle. And yeah, and, so, I, and that's why I'd say with a lot of these lake-specific questions, you do want to direct those to your local management agencies. There's a lot of great ones across the Midwest that can answer these questions. So when you do have them... They have a they have they have this information. They have growth. They have length of age. They're they're tracking, they're tracking the year classes as they go, and they they've got their finger on the pulse. So those are great applied questions for specific water bodies. Okay, um, your personal opinion. Uh, this is coming from a guy. Um, he thinks he North Dakota stocks perch. South Dakota does not. Uh, does it have to do with the lifespan isn't as long on perch? Uh, do you know anything about the stocking uh, North Dakota to South Dakota? So both states have seen this, you know, amazing boom on, you know, perch populations. They have amazing perch fisheries. You, know, you can talk about devils and the surrounding water bodies, even some smaller lakes that, that perch have really taken off in North Dakota, South Dakota, the Glacial Lakes region, and, and even elsewhere in the state, perch have really taken off. And, you know, I'd, I'd have to talk to those individual management agencies. Uh, you know, I know that South Dakota did do some perch stocking at one time, you know, as they entered this wet cycle and these lakes were getting larger and larger. They, they had a huge return on investment, so it, it definitely worked. But, I mean, at least in, in Minnesota, it got back to what I was talking about earlier about we have these well-established lakes that aren't expanding and have had an intact fish community for a long, long time it's not the same vacuum or opportunity to just have this explosive response. So, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, you'd, you'd have to talk to those individual states about, about, you know, which ones are stocking and not and, and what would happen. But yeah, they, I mean, we were just saying the perch don't live super long, but I don't know if they would use that as rationale not to stock them. I mean, it's cheap for them to go out trap some of these fish um you know we we do that a little bit in minnesota when we do have vacant systems after a winter kill and we we have shallow lakes that we're managing this way we want to get uh you know get get something going to provide a, a fishing opportunity we will take pre-spawn perch 
Um, you have to do it right after the ice goes out. We'll trap them before they spawn. Everybody knows perch spawn pretty pretty quickly after ice out. You know, pike are first and perch aren't too many weeks behind that. Try to get those pre-spawn fish, take them out, um, stock them so that that first year class can can grow up in that vacant empty system. So it does happen in, in, in times. And, and we, we, even though they don't live super long, we, we just want to take advantage of that opportunity. We know they can grow like crazy and um, take advantage of an opening in the system. Now, when you talk about a lake winter killing, like, and you guys going back in there and doing that with the fish, how long does it usually take, on average, would you say, for a fish for a lake to bounce back from a winter kill? Uh, you know, in the part of the state that I work in, in the southern part of the state, where we've got longer growing season and more productive water, I would I would say two years. But there are fishing opportunities right from the get-go on those brood fish. I won't name names, but there was a lake that uh, we, we put brood yellow perch in. They were probably 9 or 10 inches. They were already pretty nice size. And I remember coming back like two years later, they were like 13, 14. And it flew under the radar because there weren't a lot out there, right? You know, it wasn't really enough to have a real great fishing opportunity, but just to catch those one or two, you know, stud fish that were just stuffing their mouth. There was no predators for them to worry about. They could stuff their mouth full of whatever they wanted to eat because we had a vacant lake that the vegetation responded, the zooplankton responded, there was food galore. Those are the systems that you want. And I, I know there's a lot of anglers, and this is across the Midwest, they're watching winter kill. And they're they're doing it for a reason because they know that once those systems are restocked, the growth is off the charts, the fishing is really good. So whether it's a winter kill system or you read about your state management agency is doing a reclamation, like a chemical reclamation, you want to keep your finger on, on that lake for a couple of years, come and check it out, and then jump on it when it's good before everybody else knows about it. There's a little, little knowledge spitting by, by Big Scott. Uh Mark from Brainerd, Minnesota, wants to know, why do some perch have more stripes? Uh, apparently, six to eight is normal. Um, you know, some have more, obviously, probably some have less. Is that like a birth defect? Is that like somebody being born with 12 fingers or, or what? I mean, is that strictly blonde hair to dark hair? Like, what do we got there? So I've seen this come up a couple of times. Like guys are really fixated on like, oh, I gotta get this many stripes on my perch. And I've seen Craig Oiler comment on on it. Some somebody right, like posted a, seven, a picture, and, and he's like, wow, you know, I, yeah, it's like had nine stripes or something like that. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe we need the Midwest Angler Podcast Boone and Crockett perch stripe go. contest here. here we go. <laughs> You have you ever caught a nine striper? <laughs> I am this winter. I'm gonna be a sharpie. I, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to tell you, I'd love to tell you about it, but I don't think you're worthy enough to make the club. <laughs> I'm gonna have to start going back and look at my old photos. Now you know, answering the question, I, I I've never paid a lot of attention to it just because it's just one of those things. There's not, boy. I'd have to go into, so fishbase.org is kind of a, a, a great website that has a collection of the world's fish on it with all published, or a, not all, it's not exhaustive, but quite a bit of published literature is incorporated into it that gives you a whole bunch of like life history information on these species, and they have the physical descriptions in there. So maybe there's been you know, a scientific... Uh, examination of this topic. Maybe they specifically say it has to be this many, what, this this few to this many stripes. But 
off the top of my head. I've, it's just something in the genes, you know. Some are going to have more than others. So you've seen Blue Perch, correct? I have seen Blue Perch. What yep. What is, is that kind of like albinoism or? I'm trying to remember. I thought it was something to do with uh, they had, they had some sort of a, a mutation that their their scales produced this you know extra melanin you know that the, the coloring was a little bit different but it was something at a genetic level was my understanding. So d- does this go along with like you know if if you come down here and you catch a walleye here versus you catch a walleye up in northern Minnesota or Canada for the most part it's going to be a darker walleye and then you turn around and you go to like Lake Winnipeg and you get a green color is that strictly off of the water that it comes out of or or is there something actually genetically different with that largely it's the it's the habitat like you just said Scott I I think you know we talk I talk to kids or, or you know adults too about you know how do we identify fish and Everybody wants to look at color, right? We we and color's great, man. There's there's so many cool fish out there that we're attracted to their colors, you know, whether we're, you know, angling or you're looking at aquariums at uh, you know, at the at a fair or, or or, you know, going to Bass Pro shops or what have you, but color is actually a really terrible way to tell fish apart. In the in the business we call it meristics. It's quantitative measurements. It's a fishery science term. Quantitative measurements of a fish that will just, you know, let us distinctly tell apart fish. So we're going to count rows of scales along the lateral line or how many uh, spines are on the dorsal fin or, you know, whatever it might be. Color is one of the last things we look at because color can be so highly variable from fish during spawning season, from the age of the fish, from, and especially that one that you just identified, which is the water quality that they come from, right? Like you said, you know, if you're up in Lake Winnipeg, it's pretty green and turbid and they're kind of washed out versus you know, on our canoe trip into the boundary waters where it's exceedingly clear water that you can see the bottom of the lake in 20 feet, they're coming out dark black gold. I mean, just just amazing uh, variable colors on these fish that uh, for all those different reasons, the color is going to vary, but I would definitely say the habitat's probably the primary driver. Okay. Now, earlier, Scott, uh, you talked about um, studies where they've pulled fish out of stunted uh, fisheries, stunted ponds, and released those fish into, uh, you know, say a a big lake, big body of water, and those fish have turned around and flourished. But obviously, like, there's got to be something uh, genetically involved. Um, Like, if if me and you each have a kid, your kid is probably going to come out taller than mine, correct? I mean, you know, you, you have that in, you know, you're six foot four, I'm six foot one, you know, I mean, you're, is it, does that translate into fish also? I mean, does a 30 inch walleye, an egg that took from a 30 inch walleye have a better chance at, you know, getting to be a 30 inch walleye? Is there some fish that never have a chance to being a 30 inch walleye? Like if they live naturally all the way till the end, you're going to get to be 26 and that's just, you know. Sure. Uh, do, do you get what I mean? You I, know, so, is there is there different ceilings for different fish? So you're, you're asking a great question. This is a great way to to just to, to separate out fish uh, from, from 
from mammals, uh, you know, mammals have determinate growth. They're going to grow to a certain size that their genetic makeup is going to sort of set the, the ceiling on that. Fish have indeterminate growth. As long as they have the resources available, uh, there, there is no limit. You know, we think about when I used to have aquariums as a kid, you know, the, the fish would grow as large as the aquarium lets you. So in that case, that indeterminate growth was actually more boxed in by the, the, the physical realities of where it was living. But when you're in an open lake, you know, it's not the same thing. It's, it's, it's about, can you make a living? Can you get enough calories to keep growing? Uh, get, you know, keep putting it into somatic cell growth and, and grow and grow and grow and get as large as possible. And where do you reach that limit? Well, fish, you think about volume of a cylinder, most of our fish being cylindrically shaped, you know, the longer you get, the more you got to push yourself outwards. And that, that, that's a lot of growth. So they do reach a point where even though they have indeterminate growth, there's not enough calories they can take in. There might be a system that doesn't have, like Cisco's are a great example. Like you, you, you can go into a lab and take all these different fish species, put them under a Bunsen burner and see how long they'll burn for. <laughs> What's their caloric intake? What's their caloric makeup, basically? We know that Cisco's are the highest energy, probably output prey item in the whole state. Well, if you don't have those, you don't fuel that same fast growth. Uh, so you, you know, well, that's, that's a, that's a, a thing to look for with large predator fish is do you have ciscos available as a prey item um, in places that don't you're not going to see as many as those 30 inch plus uh, walleyes you know I again I keep going back to I just don't think it's a it's a genetic limitation it's it's a lot of times the makeup of what is the predator prey balance and what is the forage that's available now obviously there's a lot of talk with bluegills you know leaving those 10 inch bluegills you know in, in a system will encourage the other bluegills to, to grow bigger because, correct me if I'm wrong here, but bluegills have, they, they can either put their energy into reproducing or put their energy into growing. And when there's other big fish in the system, they put that into growing to to also get big, correct? Yeah, so now you're talking about behavioral genetics. So the behavioral genetics here is comparing a parental male bluegill, which we want and value as anglers, because those are the those are the fish that just like you described, Scott, are putting their energy into somatic somatic uh, cell growth. They're getting larger and then they're delaying reproduction. They they're gonna reach sexual maturity at later ages, which means more of their lifespan is devoted to growing. So they're getting larger and those males are guarding the nests. Now, if they go to one of their alternative life uh, life stages, they will have cuckolder males, which will come in and try to sneak in. Uh, there's sneakers and there's satellite males. There's these two other life history uh, behaviors where these males will try to sneak in and spawn, either mimicking a female looking like a female or uh, a satellite where they're they're hiding they're hiding behind another uh, another fish to sneak in and spawn so they have these alternative strategies but why we want to protect those big parental males is they're going to run off those smaller fish they're going to run off the sneakers the cuckolders they're going to they're going to kind of take care of business and then when you have most of your uh, fish community made up by those large parental males there's fewer and fewer of those smaller sneakers so absolutely you, you you've got a pretty good understanding there of, of why it's so important for behavioral genetics is, is that mostly just bluegill yeah or that's is that, what i want to know it, it is it is it is it is almost it is 
only known uh, within bluegills. We can't say the same about pumpkin seed sunfish, green sunfish, other sunfish species. That's unique to bluegill sunfish. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Wow. <clears throat> okay, um, and I think this might actually be our, our last question that was, uh, unless I missed one, but I think this might actually be our last question here uh, that was submitted. But uh, it's a two-part question. Uh, and Clint wants to know, in the past, uh, let's say, three to four years, does the data show if social media and the uptick in fishing pressure have the fish populations reflected that? That being said, should states start managing these lakes better so they can take the influx in fishing pressure? All right, so I think it's an interesting question on its head. And I think... What I've found to be somewhat fascinating is that we have moved around the boogeyman a little bit. What I specifically mean is I remember when I bought my first truck and I put up a, a, a sticker on the back that was uh, from a fishing website. And I had all these people tell me about how that website was so awful because it was the death of lake x y and z and the secret got out and all these people were on this you know uh fishing forum and talking about it and then i had another friend of mine that i talked to that said oh this this radio program was was awful or or the minnesota outdoor news was at fault because they made my lake the lake of the week and now everybody and their brother came out and fished it or before that it was you know billy bob's bait shop was telling everyone to go fish over at this location so what I'm saying here is we're, we're moving around the blame game a little bit about what are we going to point to that is the death knell of, of, you know, fishing lakes. And it's just human nature, guys. I mean, we're guys and gals. We're, we're, we like to talk about where we fish. Sometimes people share uh, very freely with that. And, you know, sometimes that fishing pressure does get concentrated in certain locations. But the reality of it all is, is there a population? And what this is what the the question is that's coming from the from the from the audience member is, is that something that an, a management agency needs to be concerned about? And there's always a you have to understand we are managing fish at a population level. To see a population level impact from that angling is highly unlikely because these systems self-regulate. I mean, you can look at Lake of the Woods, where we have really great data, right? Like really popular winter fishery, eclipsed 3 million angler hours, like just a ton of people fishing it. And everybody was throwing their hands up about this is going to be the end of Lake of the Woods. You know, I remember the, the Fargo newspaper writing an editorial about how we need to make it a limited entry system. And how can we, we, we can't let these people go out and fish on public waters. We got to, we got to do something. There's always a yin to that yang, right? Just because there's a ton of fishing pressure, there's usually a compensatory response to that. Well, it just so happened that when we eclipsed 3 million angler hours last year, the bite was really poor. It was really bad. So, you know, there was that many people out there and the, the bite was poor and the harvest wasn't all that high. Even if it was super high, you've just created a vacancy that the fish will fill. I mean, there, it's it's also a situation that... You have to trust these agencies are watching what's happening. Yeah, there's some lakes that they get in. You know, it's not like Lake of, Lake of the Woods has a survey every single year and is monitored annually. For the little lake that is, you know, 200 acres in your home county, 
that's not going to be surveyed every year. It might be every five years. It might not see anyone for 10 years or for 20 years. Who knows? But you just kind of have to roll with it and understand that there's probably not going to be a population level impact. I say probably not. If there is, that's what there's regulations for, right? I mean, you can, in the case of Lake of the Woods, if there was really high harvest, they probably would have backed up the walleye bag. And there's some places that that happens, like Red Lake, because it is a co-managed fishery with a tribal nation, they are watching how much harvest happens every year. They're watching what the total makeup of the fishery is, and they're tweaking those regulations. So you just have to trust the process that they're going to be paying attention. And just because a lake has a really hot bite and everybody and their brother is out there doesn't mean that everything is just going to collapse. Now, you, you talked last year uh, up on Lake of the Woods, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of fishing pressure and the bite wasn't very good. How, how many years, per se, on a place like Lake of the Woods would you need to see stuff like that before? I mean, obviously you can't, oh, one year, knee-jerk reaction, we got to change this. You know, you got to... You know, everything's a roller coaster. You know, this this year could be the best bite that's ever happened ever, right? It could. I mean, that's that's the beauty of the annual assessment, right? These these folks are taking a look and tracking individual year classes of walleye and sauger primarily, but also yellow perch, burbot, northern pike, uh, ciscos, you name it, all the components of the fishery up there, and they're able to see how is that responding and that's why they also have creels out there so you not only do you have an annual survey you have an angler creel so for for folks listening in the audience what is an angler creel that's when you're coming off the lake or maybe you're going out whatever it might be and someone uh you know knocks on the fish house door or pulls up next to you in a boat or is waiting at the access says do you mind if i you know interview you about your fishing day today They'll ask you how long you were out there fishing for, how many fish you caught, and how many fish you harvested. That harvest data is really important. We're able to see how many are, are coming off, how hot and heavy the bite is, so they're telling you how long they've been fishing. So you get an estimate of fishing pressure, you get an estimate of harvest, and then by measuring the catch, you can track those fish because we know what year class they're tracking to. Where is the harvest being concentrated? And in the case of Lake of the Woods, there's a protective slot limit, so we know it's you know, going to be outside of that slot limit. And you can actually monitor that. We know, okay, there's you're, 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 you're looking at these fish, and there's a nice, this year class is doing really well. We know we can take some harvest you know, up to a certain point at this level. If we exceed a safe harvest level, we can try and back it off a little bit by you know, taking a fish out of the bag or whatever might have you. So there's, there's ways to make up for that. you got to think, there's a, some folks are really concerned that see this and on our side of the table these are really resilient systems they can if you're paying attention in the case of lake of the woods and that's a shining example because of what i told you how much effort goes into angler creel and annual survey you 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 kind of know what it can handle remember that time i whooped ramsey's ass in front of that creel survey yeah. guy on the banks of enemy <laughs> swim hey, you took him down pretty yeah. good pretty good I'm wrestling just, match just there thinking about creel surveys and i remember when that, that guy was there thinking like dakota. what did i get myself into <laughs> only at a boat ramp in south dakota put a mean hurting on old drippy ramrod how do, how do you guys determine like which lakes are going to survey and like how often you're going to do it it's a, it's a matter of prioritization. So every, you know, I can speak for Minnesota's 29 different area offices across the whole state with a certain number of lakes that they're working on. 
what are their highest priority fisheries where they have fish stocking or they have a special regulation or uh, they know there's a lot of attention or fishing pressure that's out there. We have to prioritize those water bodies in the places that maybe don't see a lot of visitors or have been humming along regularly. They, they don't get visited as frequently. All of it comes down to our lake management planning, which is true for any management agency agency in the Midwest. You know, they're going to write up plans for how they're going to manage these resources. They're going to stick to that plan. They're going to follow it. They're going to evaluate how did the management work. Uh, and then sort of retool and replan things accordingly. So, uh, it all kind of part of the plan. Does it does do they stay pretty true year to year, or is there every once in a while where it's like, oh, like what happened here, and you guys got to go back and figure out kind of like why a population maybe decreased dramatically or even increased? Yes and no. I mean, I think when we're looking at the results, there's a pretty wide range of normality for outcomes. You know, fish populations are not static. They go up right. and down. You know, they, they, they can go wildly up and down. And that's entirely normal for many of these populations. So you kind of just have to have a steady hand in many cases. You know, if you see something that really is off the mark, you know, you can look at what your potential responses can be. Uh, I think a pretty good example is winter kill, although most of the lakes that are you know have, have a history of winter kill you kind of plan on that and you, you know accordingly and it's just part of the management plan is you know what's going to happen you have contingencies in place that you can kind of reestablish uh fish populations but that's a catastrophic example of something where you'd have to retool right now you know one question back we were talking a little bit about social media and you know uh that that possibly having uh, a little bit of uh uh, effect on fish population, fish quality, whatever. Is it is it possible that a major major fish pressure can actually be good for a fish population and good for fish quality? So the reason that I would ask this is I think about uh, uh, Clear Lake, Iowa, with Kevin Paul. Obviously, in the last you know five years or whatever since. Kevin has started this bait shop. He has made Clear Lake a destination fishery. I mean, you know, good quality fish. I, I would say the population is good. Ten years ago, Clear Lake wasn't something that was going to get blasted on social media all the time because Kevin didn't have that bait shop there. And, and I'm in no way, shape, or form saying that what Kevin's doing is wrong. I think it, it could possibly be benefiting that now i think also you know john grosvenor over at okaboji has an insane you know a really good social media presence cables trading post a really good social media presence you know all the bait shops over there now are doing a really good job fishing reports you know whatever i would say that the fishing you know from what i would say matt you could agree with me in the last couple of years the fishing's getting pretty stinking good over there right is that are we just you know, at the top of the, the roller coaster here? Or is it possible that, that some of this is actually doing good for that fishery? Well, yeah, I mean, it could be a sustainable thing. It's not to say that all success inevitably means there's going to be a downfall. I mean, they, they could just be going gangbusters and, and keep it that way. I mean, sometimes that happens too. So I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen a great example yet of a, of a place that social media is, blown something up but i mean there are places that you know maybe you lost some top end size i mean i can think of some some sunfish waters that that used to put out better numbers that were got out on them but uh you know it, it's hard it's hard to say that 
you know, one person highlighting something or, or a bunch of people putting the word out is, is going to run something into the toilet. Well, and I don't think it has done that. I think, if, if anything, it's the direct opposite. You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, like up on Lake of the Woods, it's just opening space for something else. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that that's the way that these are, too. It, it could very well be. All right. Well, I think uh, we're, we're past an hour. I think uh, we've gotten through all of our questions. And, uh, Scott, you did mention that you have a good news story, unless you guys got something else uh, you want to oh, talk about. I got about. a quick talk to you about something. <laughs> okay, I, got a, I come bearing gifts for you from our pheasant hunt today. We got done, and you know my brother Mike, the man of many words, I never heard of him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See? And that's what he said. Big time. He said, I really like this Scott compared to the other Scott you always hang out with. He said, the other one is always big time in me. He goes, I've been big time by Sturman like three different occasions. He said, and this Scott here, he he's talking to me. He's acknowledging me and everything like that. Because he needed so. him for a freaking peasant hunt. <laughs> so I'm come. not a user, Mike. I'm not a user. <laughs> so Scott we, from the North come is a user. something for the... For the podcast table, a spur off of one of the well, off of one of the roosters today. <laughs> he did want me to bring you a whole leg with the middle finger out and stuff like that, but I actually forgot that, dropped it, I think, out in the field. So, so he he said I had to give you some grief on that one because yeah, you kind of big timed him a few times. So he said he's he's invited you on a crappie trip this last spring. We invited Cold you up shoulder to that, that one time. Literally never happened. Yeah, we did. And really? Just, when? Like, when? This spring? I can't remember when we called him and you said I should have come along. And I said, yeah, you should have. So. <laughs> Don't make me start a weekly mic. I'll bad talk you once a week, Mike. I'll do it. He, he does it to me, so Brant's get in line. Always, Brant's always been the best brother, and everyone knows that. <laughs> They didn't get it done the first time, the second time, finally the third time. They got it done oh, right. Joe and Brenda would agree with you on that one. <laughs> All day long they'd agree with you on that one. After the first one, it was like, ooh, this is bad. Second one came out ugly. <laughs> third, third one, okay, fine, fair enough. They said it couldn't get much worse after the second one. So let's just try it one more time. And I'm not saying the third one is good. But, I mean, it's just better than the other two. It's better than the other two. Oh, I appreciate it. Now I got myself a nice, uh, nice pheasant spur. Yeah, huh. uh, that'll that'll be. I mean, I've got enough stuff on the podcast table. <laughs> yeah, I, I might as well put, put add it to the collection. There. That's right. That's right. All right. Now, can we move into good news stories? I'm good. All right. I, I think I'll start off here. Um, yesterday, me and my family went to Iowa City. Uh, Iowa got the win over Illinois, and uh, we were in attendance. It's just too bad that our friends uh, from the west of here, uh, Nebraska, couldn't uh, also do the same thing so that Iowa could take uh, a lead in the uh, in the Big Ten West. Uh, Nebraska drops the ball again, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, at least Iowa, they do their job. How, how was it being there for the Wave? Oh, it was pretty cool. It was, was it pretty, pretty cool? cool compared, yep. I mean, watching it on TV, I mean, you even get chills watching it on TV. It, it, to be there in person, it had to be probably pretty cool. Very cool, very cool. Uh, I, I will say, you know, it, it goes for like a minute, maybe even two minutes, and it's like, you know, <laughs> right, okay. okay, guys, like, you know, we've got it, you know, I mean, right. 30 seconds is a good way, you know, and it's kind of one of those deals like where everyone, you know, kind of gets done waving, the song keeps playing for another, you know, 30, 40 seconds, and then, you know, it's like, okay, you know, and 
you know, whatever, and they're starting to wrap it up, and then everyone picks their hand back up and waves again for another 10 seconds. Because it's coming back on TV. So right. You know, <laughs> if, if they wanted to take a suggestion from some, uh, from some moron up in northwest Iowa, I would say just, just shorten it up. How, you know, th- 30 seconds is a long time to wave. Yeah. No, next next time you see somebody, wave at them for thirty seconds. You might have. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Seriously, Seriously. they're gonna ask you. They're gonna say, like, "What are you doing?" And they'll probably ask you about three or four times, "What are you doing?" And, and you just keep on waving. So. That's right. All right, Matt. Mine. I don't know. I guess I'm just. My good news story is I'm kind of pumped up for uh, supper tonight because apparently you gave us a suggestion on some frozen pizza that we're supposed to try. Oh uh, so yeah. I hopefully hopefully that comes in the. You know, play your Motor your City expert, Pizza Company. It's the bomb.com. Your expertise at it. So I'm. I was really disappointed. I I cannot believe that em- Emily messaged me and said, "What are those good frozen pizzas?" I told her, "You think I was smart enough to say, hey, why don't you grab, grab me <laughs> one too?'" I wasn't. I wasn't. So, I guess that's that's mine. I might be coming over for supper. You don't even know it, <laughs> Scott. Well, I had some some crummy news uh, in the in the fishing world. I'll leave with that so we can get the bad news, good news. The bad news: uh, Stephen Pickt passed away uh, over the weekend. He was uh, very active in Minnesota as a as a tournament angler in the walleye uh, walleye world walleye tournaments. He was very active. He lived up in uh, Grand Rapids. He uh, got he was very instrumental in starting the uh, the state's high school fishing leagues. He'd helped out with that. Active with the National Professional Anglers Association and recruiting new members and really putting the word out on fishing. He was passionate about what he did and just uh, really, really disappointing. He was uh, in his upper 50s, so still a relatively young guy. Had a lot of good work that he would have continued to do. I know he used to come to the DNR roundtable to talk about different issues. Uh, was was very active, so that was a loss. And then uh, Dan Gapen passed away. He's just an icon in Minnesota, an entrepreneur. Uh, opened a number of re- resorts in uh, northern Minnesota, uh, in the Arrowhead, and then up into Canada, in the Nipigon, and you know the family's a big name. He he, he created a, a a really successful tackle line. Uh, used to be at sport shows. This just a wealth of of fishing knowledge. So a couple couple big names that passed away this weekend that uh, uh, gone but not forgotten certainly. But uh, to turn the mood around, the good news, uh, <clears throat> went into the office, we had some work to do, and uh, got a packet in my, in my uh, mail slot, and <laughs> typically when something like that comes in, it's like, oh boy, you know, somebody's got a petition, or you know, they're going to write me to complain about something or other, I don't know why my, my mind went to the negative, well, I, I crack it open. And I've got about uh, 10 or 12 handwritten, hand-drawn thank yous from the Das Kokato fourth grade elementary classes that came out to environmental days last month. And these kids really did a, a super job. They were very well behaved. We trap net some fish and talked to them about fish, fish identification, fish species, fish parts, try to get them as excited about fish as, as we as biologists and anglers are. And uh, we'll see if they uh, if they become uh, lifelong fishermen. But boy, they sure uh, they sure enjoyed it, and oh, they 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 did some awesome drawings and and thank yous. So that 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 made my 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 day, my week, and my month. 
I just want to say congratulations on Buffalo and them fourth grade. <laughs> I, I read I read those and you know they were talking about how cool you were and whatever. Young <laughs> young and impressionable. That's right. You, you That's really right. pulled the wool over their eyes. So, all right, Scott. Well, uh, man, we appreciate you uh, coming down and actually being a part uh, of the show in in person. Uh, obviously, that made it a whole lot easier. Um, you know. For those of you that are listening, if this sounded a little bit different, this obviously isn't our our normal microphones. Me and Matt each have a microphone. I think uh, I think this is reason enough to to get a third microphone. But uh, on this one, we're just kind of doing a round table with a microphone right out uh, in between us. But um, uh, yeah, no, we we definitely appreciate you coming down and. Uh, um, that was episode 147, Seven. and we'll see you on 148 later. <laughs> <laughs>